The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and today I'm thrilled to bring you my first episode starring a United States Senator. I'm joined today by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat from Rhode Island. Chelsea, this is an eco-right podcast. Why are you featuring a Democrat? I hear you ask. Listeners, here is why. Senator Whitehouse is a dealmaker. He's one of the members of the U.S. Senate who, while feeling passionately about climate change and the urgency to act, understands that in order to ensure climate policy is durable, it must be bipartisan. He passed into law a dedicated fund to support ocean and coastal research and restoration and bipartisan legislation to confront the crisis of marine plastic and other waste polluting our oceans. He's worked to enact bipartisan measures to reduce carbon pollution and boost America's clean energy economy. Senator Whitehouse is a senior member of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, which, if you've been listening, you know is my alma mater and a place that is near and dear to my heart. Last year, when our spokesperson, John Sweeney, was published in the National Review Online, Senator Whitehouse distributed the article to his staff, who then reached out to John with a request to meet. Senator Whitehouse is also friends with our executive director, Bob Inglis, who joins our conversation. Overall, I'm super excited to bring you this conversation. He's going to share why he thinks it's been hard for Republican lawmakers to engage on climate change for the last decade, the so-called lost decade, as well as discuss what we need to do to break the partisan logjam. Listeners, in lieu of whose line is it anyway, I thought that we would spend the last two episodes of season one of the Eco Right Speaks sharing something special about the holidays. So just a very general question to my teammates at RepublicEn.org. I asked them to share with you with all of us a favorite family tradition that they now practice in their own homes something that um, somebody else in the family maybe started or a previous generation started and since i'm here i'm going to go first and i actually have two so i know that might be cheating but something that my mom and stepdad did when i was young is they always had a bottle of champagne on christmas morning And then as we got older, we were able to partake in that tradition. And now that my kids are older, they get to have a little glass of champagne as we open our presents. A new one that we have done the last two years, and I know that we will do it this year as well, is my son Jack has decided that he really likes to make apple strudel. So he has taken that upon himself, and I expect that we'll be doing that again. So now here is the holiday tradition shared by Wen Lee. Okay, so my extended family is really big and our Christmas gift giving used to be out of control. Like everyone would buy gifts for everyone. It was a huge waste of money and time and materials um, just because people weren't giving very thoughtful gifts because there were so many. And so um, a few years back, 
um, we decided to change this and draw names instead and have secret Santas. So everyone only drew one other person um, and then each person would put together a wish list of things that they would like and then um, their secret Santa would choose one thing from that list to send them and uh, that way there was fewer gifts, uh, less waste, and the gifts were more meaningful because it was something that people actually wanted. And it was always like fun to find out who drew your name. By our producer, Price Atkinson. One of our holiday traditions as a family is on Christmas Eve, uh, we go and we get some helium balloons made up uh, earlier in the day. And then usually about dinner time, about uh, dusk is the sun setting, um, we all go and we write messages, uh, a you know, private message on an index card, whatever we want to say to a loved one or several loved ones. And we write those messages on an index card and we punch a hole in the corner and we tie them to our balloons and we go out in the front yard, um, and we release our balloons and we send up our messages to loved ones who, uh, may have just left us or may have been gone for a while. Uh, but just uh, holiday wishes and things that we might want to say to some of those who are special to us who aren't with us anymore. And so that's one of the things that we really love to do as a family. And um, it, it takes me back and lets me think about my mom quite a bit and all the amazing uh, Christmases that she made and, and had for our family and just how much I terribly miss her to this day. So that's something that we do every year on Christmas Eve and we'll continue to do for the foreseeable future. And I'm also sharing with you a team member that you might not recognize because he is very behind the scenes. Greg Cordell does much of our artwork and I asked him to share a holiday tradition as well. He asked me to specify as you listen to it. Well, I'm going to let you listen to it and then I will give you the qualification. For years, my brother would take his family on a cruise uh, you know, Caribbean cruise or something at Christmas. And I um, always thought that was a really wonderful idea, although that usually meant I didn't get to see my brother on Christmas. But that aside, so when our children were about, um, you know, six or seven, maybe five, I can't remember exactly when, but um, we decided that that's what we should do for Christmas. We would, the big gift, the big Santa reveal would be where are we going to go this Christmas and you know to make it fun we would take boxes and put clues in packages so we would all get to open and try to guess or the children would try to guess where we were going to go that year um, and so that's been probably um I hope a tradition that my children will always remember and and that we've just thoroughly enjoyed. And, and I just remember as a kid, you know, on Christmas Day, it was sort of bittersweet because it was there, but it was over in a way, you know. And there was sort of a, wow, you know, we've got to put all the decorations up in a few days. And, and with this, um, you know, Christmas Day is just the beginning, as Christmas Day should be. So um, rather than racing through packages under a tree and then it's over, you know, we get to spend a new, a few days in a new place. And that's like basically like opening something 
new every day, in some cases every hour. So Greg wanted to make sure that I clarified that they are being COVID safe this year, so no travel, no immediate travel this year as they have done in the past. Anyway, do feel free to share your own holiday traditions with us. We are eager to try to spark as much spirit as possible. Without further ado, my conversation with our Executive Director Bob Inglis and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Welcome back, listeners. As I have been promising for 20-something episodes, my first United States Senator as a guest, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island is here with me today, joining us in conversation with Bob Inglis, our Executive Director. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. It's good to be with you, and I'm delighted to hear that we share warm, fond memories of Senator John Warner. Yes, my old boss. The best boss I had until I had Bob, I will say. Oh. <laughs> that, that, was, that was very diplomatic, Chelsea. Very good. <laughs> well, I just remember being, a, I had young kids at the time when I was working for Senator Warner, and he was the first boss I ever had who said, go home. Go home when daycare or school closes, and I can call you if I need to talk about how to vote on the energy and water bill, because I've been voting for 30 years and I know how to do it. So <laughs> it was great. I got to see a lot of my kids um, when they were young. But anyway, we are here to talk about, I think, one of the issues that you're most passionate about, and that is climate change. And as I told our listeners before you came on, one of the reasons why I targeted you early as a senator to come on the show is that you're one of a handful of Democrats who I think really understands the need to reach across the aisle, that we need to have this bipartisan, durable policy if we're going to actually tackle the problem. And so one thing I, I, I guess when we invited you to be on the show, we thought at the time before the election that probably you might be taken over a gavel in 2021. Now that looks less clear or, or perhaps even more likely that um, the Republicans will hold on to the gavels. What do you think we can do in the upcoming two years, even if Senator McConnell is in charge of giving out gavels? I think um, the most important thing that we can do, and um, I want to thank Bob for his work trying to make this happen, is to create an environment in which Republican senators can vote for climate legislation without fear. There's been enormous shift recently and some of the strongest uh, deniers of climate change have backed off and indeed are supporting small climate bills. Um, there's a lot of bipartisan legislation that is happening on climate, but it's along the margins. And if you want to do something that's actually going to address the 1.5 or 2 degrees problem and keep us within those uh, safety bounds, then Republicans are going to need to feel safe doing that. They used to. Um, when I first got there, um, Senator Warner had a bill, Senator Collins had a bill, uh, Senator Graham had a bill, um, Senator uh, McCain ran for president as a Republican with a very strong climate platform. And it all came to a crashing halt in January of 2010, which I think is not coincidentally 
the date of the Citizens United decision, which allowed uh, political musketry to turn into political artillery and powered up the fossil fuel industry to go to the Republican Party and basically say, you're dead to us, which by the way means you're dead if you play around on climate. So we've had this lost decade as a result of that. And now the question is, who will come to support Republican senators if they want to do something? And the dirty secret that I share everywhere I can right now is that the rest of corporate America has not yet shown up. Yeah. They're happy to, as we saw today, write a big fancy letter saying how we should rejoin the uh, Paris Accords, but their lobbyists don't get a notice saying, hey, we're lobbying on this stuff now. Their election folks don't get a notice saying, hey, we're not going to support people who aren't supporting us on this climate issue. And they certainly aren't cleaning up their trade associations, which include two of the worst climate obstructors in America. Um, so, you know, it's great that those public facing steps are happening, but until people who live in my world feel a safe path exists, um, and that means that big ag and big tech and Wall Street and the big financial companies and the big consumer companies are all going to have to get together and say, we will have your back if you do this. Um, and I think when that happens, we get into a substantive discussion instead of one of how do I survive even having a conversation. What can you predict, uh, Senator, by way of how that would happen? Do you think that there are any events that could come our way that would cause the lobbying expenditures actually to go up? In other words, for them to actually prioritize climate action? I mean, what, what would it, what yeah, would it take, think, you think? I think there's a, a real leadership role here for uh, President Biden. Um, I think he can convene, uh, say, the Business Roundtable, or an even bigger group than the business roundtable. The business um, people a had a great letter on carbon pricing over the summer. And to what you just said, I hadn't really connected the dots that there's a lot of talk. We definitely look at the polling and we see that majority of Republican voters want to see climate action, but that isn't moving the members. Correct. And you hit the nail on the head, I think, with the- Correct, the because nobody's really showing up to say to a member, we'll have your back if you do this. Um, I mean, ultimately, in my dream world, the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the big Wall Street lobbyists, the Farm Bureau, um, and some of the really big hitters on the corporate business side go into Mitch McConnell's office and say, Mitch, it's time. You can't hold us off any longer. We're, we demand that there be a serious climate bill and we're not going to support any of your darn Republicans until you promise us that this will happen and make that true. And then I think the politics changes like that. Now, that yeah. probably isn't going to happen immediately. So that's why a role for vice president, for now president-elect Biden kicks in, which is that he can convene that big group and he can do two things. One, try to get them together because there's a herd protection if they all do it together. The first one to push on this could get punished. And I, they told me they're frightened of being punished. But if they do it all together, it's hard to punish a group that big. And the second, he can a little bit kind of cajole and noodle them into actually getting off their rear ends and doing something because there is this terrible discrepancy between what they say they care about, what they say their position is on climate and where their lobbying and political work is uh, landing. 
And if you're a big company looking at a lot of people in a country that care a lot about climate, you don't want to be saying one thing and doing another. So the uh, Vice President Biden is a very nice guy and he's not going to go at them meanly, but I think he does have the ability to both be a convener and a little bit of a prod to say, look, if you guys don't get off your butts and start doing something on climate seriously and start supporting Republicans who want to work with us, then, you know, we're going to start disclosing and seeking out who the hell funded the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And we're going to start talking about this discrepancy between what you say and what you do. Well, and I think that President-elect Biden has already distinguished himself by the selection of the announcement of some of his cabinet choices. So we at Republic EN were thrilled with Janet Yellen, who we know is an advocate of yep. the carbon tax. And you have um, former Senator Kerry as a, yep. a climate envoy to really repair our reputation abroad. And you know, we, we have said before on our podcast and in our some of our group conference call therapy sessions that Paris, in terms of what it can really achieve, isn't necessarily as big of a deal as what it represents. And it represents yeah, exactly. leadership. And Paris was inadequate on the day that we signed it. And Secretary Kerry knew that. But he also knew that unless you established that beachhead and got into the Paris Agreement, you then wouldn't have a forum for making the steps happen that are necessary to find safety here. And what we do have coming up is Glasgow. And we have a very conservative prime minister in the UK who is leaning in hard on climate, proving that you can be conservative and do big things to protect against this hazard. And I think um, that needs to forget Paris. That was your grandfather's Oldsmobile the day we signed for it. Um, doing something big in Glasgow is really the, the target now. And if people want to say, well, you should join the Paris Accord again, yeah, fine. But seriously, let's get at 1.5 to 2 degrees. Um, so in your Time to Wake Up series, which I don't, are you still doing your? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I had read this quote that you gave on the 250th episode. I don't know where you stand now. I think this was from about a year ago, where you said that you think that there are at least a dozen Republican senators who would like to participate in the climate discussion and do something positive that solves the problem. How do we get them aside from, okay, so you did give some thoughts on, you know, we need the big industry to go in, but also, you know, when I was on the Hill, when I was doing the Lieberman-Warner bill, and we were trying to get Republican co-sponsors to what you said, nobody wants to be the one, right? Yep. Whether you are the, the first big company or the first big trade association, same. You didn't want to be the first Republican to sponsor the Lieberman-Warner climate bill. But we got three all at once, right? And they coordinated, those offices coordinated, they held hands, they did their announcement together. So can, is there some sort of strategy we can do where we can get some of these folks more activated, maybe in, a, in the way that Kevin McCarthy did after the 2018 election when he thought, oh, well, I have a suburban problem. We need to do something on climate change or we're going to keep losing in elections. And they did um, on the Republican side in the House, they had their 13 bills and they were small bills. They weren't going to get you that 1.52 um, degree change that we need but they were a start. And you know, you get people kind yeah. of comfortable before you go and ask them to co-sponsor a carbon tax, which is ultimately what we would like to see happen. So I think it's important for um, conservatives like Bob 
um, and others to play a convening role in the safety of the Republican club um, to try to develop that group of three or five or seven or whatever it will be that will be the first group to get started. Um, I think that's going to be a really important conversation to have. There are actually people within the fossil fuel industry who are on the fossil fuel industry payroll who are actually working to try to make that happen because the fossil fuel industry, though malign, is not monolithic. And there are groups within it that see that the current trajectory is really bad for the fossil fuel industry and for the Republican Party. So I think uh, I'm not in a position to support that, but I do think Republicans who are asked to participate in supporting that should understand that this is a really important priority. And then I think, you know, we just need to keep standing up. We need to get the, the corporations, the, the big interest groups off the bench and onto the field. Um, and that's gonna happen automatically to some degree because big agriculture is genuinely frightened about the supply chain of product in a world that is changing so dramatically um, in terms of the natural world that it takes to grow the uh, crops that they sell. Um, the financial world is increasingly alarmed by the crash warnings either from coastal property value crash or from carbon bubble crash. And in both cases, you now have big industries for whom this is now becoming existential. This is yeah. a business survival proposition, maybe not next year, but within the next decade, perhaps. So this issue is moving from customer relations, investor relations, and public relations into real like business strategy. And when it hits that, then I think um, some of these folks are gonna realize, uh-oh, for our own accounts, not to save the planet, not because it's the right thing to do, not to protect the Republican Party, but for our own accounts, we need to get this solved and we need to get it solved now. We need to go in guns blazing on this issue. And I think that moment is, is uh, really almost foreordained, but anything we can do to accelerate it by helping catalyze uh, the conversations and encourage them to get off their rear ends would be, is, is critical. So I think it's those two things, teeing up on the Republican side, privately so people don't have to uh, divulge themselves publicly before they're ready. And then making sure that they know that there's a safe lane through the barbed wire and the guard towers that the fossil fuel industry has erected to keep them caged. Yeah, and you know, uh, what, I, what I'm hearing you say, Sheldon, there is the crisis is coming, it's really upon us, right? And so I think what I learned after 12 years in the house is this formula, leadership aimed at consensus, plus a crisis equals change. So the crisis you've just described, and it is it does seem to be upon us now, and the farmers are realizing it, everybody's realizing it. Yeah. The question is whether we can get leadership aimed at consensus. What do you think it, I mean, you, you just said something I think is true, is that Joe Biden has a way of cajoling, he may be LBJ, a nice master of the Senate, you think? I mean, I read that book recently, and you don't want to pattern your life after LBJ, particularly your marriage relationship, you don't want to pattern after LBJ. But is that what it takes? I mean, what is it? When will we get that leadership aimed at consensus? You know, it's, uh, when will it become no longer attractive to be the populist 
nationalist who's establishing the other is the enemy of the state. Yeah. Do you think that's coming or how do, how do we get that part? I think um, a part of that equation is to understand that there's a very significant apparatus that supports climate denial and enforces orthodoxy around climate denial. Yeah. And if that apparatus is left to operate unhindered and untrammeled, then we're on one pathway. But if you, in what the artillery world would say, um, engage in some counter-battery fire, and you make life more difficult for that big apparatus and expose who's funding it and really you know, dig into the mischief, then they're busy trying to fight and defend themselves instead of going out there and trying to um, ruin the lives of any Republican who crosses them. And we have been negligent about doing our job at exposing who this organized and orchestrated adversary is. It changes the narrative when people see it and it changes their power when they're exposed and people put them under the spotlight of uh, public awareness. Um, and it's our job to do that and not assume it's gonna happen on, on its own or wait for Wall Street to go and tangle with the, the uh, denial apparatus. We've got all the tools we need to do that. And it's very consistent with the public oversight responsibilities that Congress has. Um, and in addition, as uh, president, Biden will bring additional tools to the table. When we want to figure out how, the ch how and why the challenger blew up, there was a presidential commission that investigated that. If we want to figure out yeah. how and why bipartisanship that Chelsea saw firsthand up until 2010 in the Senate blew up, he can put together a high level panel to look at that and make people come in and answer some questions. Um, I think when people see why we are where we are, that will open up an enormous amount of running room for progress. May I just look at the makeup of the EPW committee, the Environment and Public Works listeners, for those who don't speak Senate jargon. And, you know, my late boss, John Chafee in the late 90s, and then Bob Smith from New Hampshire, who was very conservative, but believed that you had to protect the environment because it was God's gift to us. And we were here for a short period of time. And a John Warner who was willing to, you know, work with his pal Joe Lieberman on a climate change bill. And these days you look at the Republican side of the EPW committee and, and they aren't the roster of senators that I'm looking at to be the movers and shakers on climate change. You know, no, it's been, it's been a measure of the power and influence of the fossil fuel industry increasing dramatically since Citizens United to see the change in who um, Majority Leader McConnell wants to have on the Environment Public Works Committee. It used to be that Republicans who wanted to do good things for the environment went to the Environment Public Works Committee, which was the place where you could do those good things. That is basically entirely gone. And it has been replaced by a roster of very fossil fuel oriented uh, senators um, who are basically there as a bulwark against good climate legislation. Now, even that is beginning to change, however, um, because if you're from West Virginia or Wyoming, 
and you're looking at where your economy is right now, if you're in West Virginia, your coal economy is already pretty much dead. And if mm -hmm. you want to turn around, you need help with that turnaround. So if you want to see some real resources come into your state, then the carbon fee and dividend that also goes back to states for theory of how you solve this suddenly provides a way to revive a lot of those communities that you wouldn't otherwise have. It becomes self-abusive behavior to stop progress at some stage. I think West Virginia has passed that stage. Wyoming, if it's looking at what the industry is telling us in its reporting, not what it's telling us in its politics, the write-offs, the write-downs, the, the uh, crashes of stock value, the changing projections for utilization of, of gas uh, and oil. Um, if you look at how dependent Wyoming is on fossil fuel for its basic economy, it's basically a private preserve funded by fossil fuel in which people can go and pay virtually no taxes for robust government services on the fossil fuel dime. Um, if that collapses, that's gonna be really catastrophic for Wyoming. And when you read about the carbon bubble um, and the prospect of crash, which is so commonly written about now, it's almost mundane, um, at some point smart people are gonna say, I need an off ramp because while I'm happy where we are right now, this road, like the Wiley Coyote wall, you know, it may look like there's a road ahead, but you smash into rock real soon. And I need an off-ramp and an off-ramp that will keep my state funded and that will give us a way to reboot more to, particularly in Wyoming's case, wind and solar, and also deal with the economic dislocation of workers who are um, shifted. Um, better to have an off-ramp for those workers than it is to have them ask you why you did nothing when you hit that rock wall with the tunnel painted on it. Well, yeah. hopefully we can get to a place where we're celebrating durable bipartisan solutions before we're hitting rock walls. Although I do tend to think we need a big crisis in order to start that response. Um, yeah. But I, appreciate everything that you do. And again, your, your outreach to the other side of the aisle, your, your understanding that this can't be done in a vacuum and your advice are all things we're going to be thinking about. And I know that I want to nominate Bob to be on that bipartisan commission. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and really, uh, Sheldon, we do greatly appreciate the, 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 the spirit with which you reach out to people like us conservatives trying to reach conservatives on climate change. Actually, so you're... you know what, Bob, we didn't um, talk about this with the senator about a year ago, one of our, our biggest volunteers, our super volunteers wrote an op-ed that was published in National Review Online on conservatives and the carbon tax. And you apparently read it and sent it to your whole office. And then someone in your office scheduled a meeting with him. He lives in New York, he came down, but he was really thrilled to think that a United States Senator had read his words. Um, this yes. is the guy, John Sweeney. And so, yeah, that, that recognition that also there are good guys to work with out there. And we're, we think we're those good guys. So. Yeah. Yeah. We, and well, we we've got a big problem to solve. Sure yes. Do. And we're literally in it together. So uh, maybe we'll we come to that realization. Oh, somebody figures out how to live on Mars. We are in it together. <laughs> yeah. And the last thing I'll say, because it's a very, um, you know, bipartisan concern that we all have, is that 
uh, we all as Americans have enjoyed the American century. Um, it was really highlighted with our role in World War II and the greatest generation and what we did afterwards by building freedom in Japan and around Asia and throughout Europe and setting the conditions for the world we live in now, which is a um, market-based, generally dem democratically elected, generally society. Um, and that has been a, an, a, just an extraordinary gift to the world. And millions of people have had far, far better lives because of all of that. And my biggest worry here is that if we blow it on climate change, and if we blow our leadership and our reputation on this, and if we do so because we yielded up our democracy to special interests when we knew better, then we have done enormous harm to the American proposition. And we need the American proposition to be a strong proposition. It is out there competing with other propositions. Putin has a proposition. Xi has a proposition. The Islamic fundamentalists have a proposition. And it really is very much against our national interest as Americans to be damaging our own proposition willfully and at the behest of a special interest that has a huge conflict of interest on this issue. Well said. Amen. So true. First-generation American, for me, on my mom's side, you know, my grandparents fled the tyranny of the Soviet Union and there you are. World War II. So, yep. Senator the American proposition is a jewel and a treasure that we need to hold up and defend, not draw down. And now some thoughts from our spokesman, John Sweeney, on Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. I've always admired Senator Whitehouse's dedication and leadership on climate solutions in the Senate, as well as his willingness to work with conservatives on messaging and solutions that could resonate with uh, more conservative voters and politicians. That's obviously something that we're very focused on in the eco-right as well. So I obviously love the fact that he shared my National Review article uh, when it came out, uh, and I'm hopeful that he can find enough like-minded senators in this next Congress to create some meaningful bipartisan climate legislation. Price, happy December. Happy December, Chelsea. As 2020 comes to a, well, as we get ready to start closing up the book on 2020, and I know that's music to almost everybody ear, everybody's ears considering what 2020 has been like since, oh, about mid-March. So yeah, I, like you, you actually... Sorry, I was going to say you had a COVID test today. You are super endemic of what this year has been like. Yep, as school is coming to an end, not for the year year, but for the calendar year. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, one of both my kids, their after school program, which is not at their school, um, it's at a different facility, but somebody socializing, socializing with another over the Thanksgiving holiday, one of the teachers in the after school uh, where they go tested positive, but then their after school, um, the person that was with them last or the yeah, last Monday um, was positive and that we found out uh, Tuesday last week. And so therefore with the exposure, all that, we had to then go do uh, the COVID test, all seven or all four of us for the seven day period. So yes, 
I got to finally experience what COVID testing was like, except we didn't have to do the nasal swab. We got to do the saliva test. So, Oh, now, yeah. So yeah. you don't even really, that doesn't <laughs> count because you did not have to have your brain tickled. No, so. <laughs> no. And my kids were uh, 8 and 10. They were scared to death of having their brain tickled. But thank goodness we did not have to go that route. But yes. Finally, before 2020 ends, I can say, yes, finally COVID testing. And hopefully we'll be able to say, finally, all four of us are negative, which I expect we will be. But you never freaking know uh, with everything that's going on, although you can you can be as careful. We do everything by the book. And I know people that have done it by the book as well. I'm sure our, some of our listeners have done it by the book and they say, you know what, you can do it by the book. And it still doesn't matter. COVID will find you. But. Luckily, it yeah. won't find us, so we will know here in a couple of days. But thanks for thanks for mentioning that and keeping us uh, good prayers and good thoughts as we await the test. Yeah, for sure. My fingers are crossed for you all. We just hit our two week mark of Jack being back from college and having you know he flew home, so we were definitely celebrating that. And you're right, you can't be too careful. I've known people that have come down. You know, they've been asymptomatic, but they were doing all the right things. They were wearing masks and socially distancing and. Um, so there are still ways to get it. So everyone listeners, please just be safe. And, you know, for your neighbor, you don't know if the person next to, to you is immunocompromised, just be a good human, wear a mask. The one thing I will say too, also is just as every day has kind of gone by, since we've, you know, heard and learned of where the vaccines stand and the effectiveness and everything, and now we're we're literally within hours of getting a rollout and vaccines starting to be distributed, barring any last-minute hiccup by the FDA. But it's just marveling, utterly something to marvel at, that in less than a year's time, I know it was fast-tracked, I know that if you want to do it in a perfect world, you spend years working on these things. But the fact that we are talking, what, maybe nine months from a global killer, there's no other way to put it. That's what COVID-19 has been. The fact that we have science and scientists delivering a vaccine at the end of this year, that short a time period is just it's breathtaking. It's amazing. It's it's something to take to stand back and just say, wow. Science, what science can do for us in technology, it's just absolutely amazing. I mean, my hat's off to all the scientists who have worked frantically to put this together. And, you know, I saw this great meme um, over the weekend that, and, and I think they have a series of them that was basically like, Oh, you don't know what's in the COVID test. Do you know what's in that Pop-Tart you're eating? Do you know what is in that Dorito? (laughs) Do you know what's in, like, we put a lot of things in our body. We don't know exactly what's in it. And, and, and I think that, you know, I'm going to tie this into climate change and just say, we have to trust the scientists. We had Carrie Emanuel on two weeks ago and talked about this, about, you know, where the, this, um, disbelief is, is coming in and, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Yeah. And right now the facts are that if we are going to um, defeat this virus, we need at least 70% of the American population to get the vaccine. And we don't have that high of a percentage rate of people who get the flu vaccine. So there is going to need to be some coordinated effort to convince people. And similarly, the science has spoken on climate change and you know, I thought that that conversation with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse 
I I really enjoyed it, Price. I don't know if you could tell by my voice, but yep. you know, he seemed he seemed actually a little angry in how, you know, just I not angry but like frustrated. And I get it. Um, you know, he's been working for a long time on this issue, but he's so, you know, while he is his politics are more progressive, he gets the need to make whatever happens bipartisan if we want it to be durable. And if there are two words that our listeners take away from this podcast at the end of the year, I hope that they are durable and bipartisan because you cannot have the durability without the bipartisanship. And if you have the bipartisanship, then you're going to have the durability. So they really are interlinked. And that was why I invited him to come on the show. I was really impressed last year when he reached out to John Sweeney and, uh, you know, not the senator personally, but his office after the senator had come across his op-ed and distributed it to the to his entire office. And I have linked um, John's op-ed in the show notes. So if you missed it in 19, uh, 2019 when it was originally published, um, go ahead and check on our website and you'll find it there. But yeah, Senator Whitehouse, great guy. Yeah, and I'd like to see how something that I'm really interested to watch is the interplay with um, with obviously Janet Yellen, who's uh, pro carbon tax, and and Senator Whitehouse, because like you mentioned, we need we need durable policy here. Um, we don't need more. We don't need the EPA trying to pull this off. Um, and I wonder. I hope, and I think. <laughs> Somebody will, we've had past guests say, nope, it's a pipe dream. Some, you know, like we say, that's the way to go. I've got, I'm just saying I'm optimistic and hopeful uh, that this might be a vehicle because the, one of the keys in it is Sheldon Whitehouse. And we know that obviously, depending on what happens with Georgia, that Republicans are going to have control of the Senate and having somebody like Whitehouse that will reach across the aisle. And again, bipartisanship, I know people will say it's dead and gone. It's not, folks. We have a group of Republicans in the Senate who know it's real, who know we need to act, who know that we need to step up. And it's somebody like Whitehouse that I think that can offer the olive branch and get this done. And I I will remain optimistic, and I am optimistic and, you know, he said nobody wants to be the first one. And and we've definitely I've experienced that in my Senate career and um, you as well. Like that is, you know, I, I get that. Nobody wants to be the first Republican to say, OK, I'll co-sponsor that ca- cabin uh, cabin cabin. Where did that come from? <laughs> I wish I were at a cabin. The carbon fee and dividend approach or carbon tax, whatever it is. And, you know, what could really help price is our listeners. So. If you live in a state with a Republican senator or you live in a district that's represented by a Republican, weigh in with them. Tell them how you feel about car, uh, climate change. Encourage them to come to the table and be part of the discussion on the solutions. We won't advise you to pick a certain solution because that's not what we do, but um, definitely make your voices heard because they listen and there, there comes a point where when you are hearing from so many people back home, you can't help but get engaged. And we've heard so many of these members say that that was how it happened for them. And so um, your voice is important. And I know that in a sea of, um, you know, we're a large country and it can feel overwhelming and it can often feel like your voice is lost. But um, trust me, especially if there are more of you, the more the merrier for sure. 
um, get out there, whether it's a letter, an email, a phone call, but make your positions known. It's helpful. Yeah. And if you're especially if you're a young conservative, that is key because you can really have your voice heard, especially your if, voice counts twice. Yeah. <laughs> especially if you go and write something for a local newspaper or a letter to the editor, if it's an op ed, um, those things will get seen and read by your member of Congress slash senator because they will end up in their clips and their comms director is going to see it. It's going to you know include it, add it to their daily clip list. It's going to go around to their staff. And trust me when I say maybe not all of them, but I know I work for a boss in Bob Inglis that looked at those things, read them, skinned them. He knew what was going on, and it will most likely, I can tell you most likely, it be seen by your member slash senator because when you start having young conservatives step up, that's when the light goes off and you really start, hmm, something's happening here. So I, I promise you it will not be time wasted. Um, another thing you can do that we promise is not a waste of time is as we prepare, you know, we're going to have one more episode to round out our first season of the podcast. And then we're going to leave you to celebrate the holidays and the new year, recharge, whatever it is you need to do. We are going to come back in January strong with season two. And while we are starting to put together our programming, we definitely want to hear from you and, um, you know, what is working, what isn't working, what would you like more of, who would you like to hear from? So head to our website, republicen.org forward slash podcast, and we'll have a survey. It hardly takes you any time. I actually faux took it myself, imagined I was, I, I didn't want to skew the results, so I didn't actually take it, but I looked at it and Price has seen it it's so fast. And for those who actually complete the survey, your name will be entered into a drawing for a $50 Amazon gift card. So um, get in there, let us know what you think. I can give you a few hints to what we have coming up um, in 2021, if you want me to do that, Price. Absolutely. Um, we are hoping, and again, you know, senators' schedules can always be in flux, but we are scheduled to talk to Senator Mike Braun on my birthday, actually, at 8 a.m., so I will not be sleeping in on my birthday at December 17th, but right now we are scheduled to record with him, and that would be our first episode in 2021 um, airing on January 12th, unless something happens and he has to reschedule that, but my, I remain hopeful that we will be bringing Senator Braun to your ears on January 12th. And then I'm also working up an interview with a meteorologist, which I think would be really interesting. Um, have feelers out to another climate scientist. And so, you know, we're going to keep going and we're going to keep bringing these voices to you. And, and actually, I'm really keen to see see if we can get our latest spokesperson on the podcast, even just for a short segment. Um, Casey Hirschman is a chemical engineer in Texas. She came to us and said that she wanted to work with the EcoRight, and she brings that unique perspective of being somebody that actually works on fracking and on the health, hum uh, health and environmental safety aspects of fracking. So um, she has an interesting schedule where she's on 14 days pretty much all straight on location and then she's off 14 days so she's just feeling like she wants to spend her 
off days doing things with us. So I really am, I'm going to try to get her to come on because I would love to hear what, you know, a day in the life of a fracking engineer. <laughs> we got a lot of great things coming up uh, in 2021. Again, don't forget the survey, republican.org forward slash podcast. You will be entered to win a $50, $50 Amazon gift card when you complete that survey. And that survey is very, very valuable to us. So we would love to have your feedback, especially those who have listened, if this is your first podcast or if this is your 25th or somewhere in between, we want to hear from you. Chelsea, on the way out the door, uh, a couple new members, shout out, uh, Bryce Y in Oregon, Mark S in Tennessee, Christy W in Texas, Greg C in Virginia, Lauren B in Georgia. You want to sign up, republican.org forward slash join. We need you. We want you. But until then, Chelsea, next week, we got a little bit more to go in 2020. Can't wait to do it one more time. Yeah. So next week, we'll have Neil Chatterjee. He's a commissioner on the Federal um, Energy Regulatory Commission. He is the he was the chairman of that commission until he was demoted earlier this year for his stance on carbon pricing. And I can say without hyperbole price that I learned more in that conversation with Neil than I have from any podcast guest we've had yet. It was a really informative discussion. He kind of, he breaks down, he called FERC the most important agency you've never heard of. And I think for a lot of people, they may never have heard of FERC. I work in this field and I still, I know a little bit better what FERC does, but I partly wanted to have Neil on so that I could educate myself. So um, we felt very lucky to be able to bring his voice. He also is a former staffer to Senator McConnell, so he's going to um, he provides some perspective on the Senate and um, you know how things might play out there. So anyway, it's going to be a great conversation. That will be our last episode of season t- uh, season one. I almost said season twenty one. Price no, I will be seventy one years old <laughs> if we're in season twenty one. Um, Season one, last episode. Can't believe it. Wouldn't be here without you, Price. It's been so fun. It has been fun. It's been a ton of fun. It's going to be fun in 2021. But we, like I said, we still got one more until then. Chelsea, we will do it next week. Great job. Great interview with Senator Whitehouse. Until next week, we will talk to you then. All right. Bye, Price. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.